0: Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners, to episode 87. I'm Dr. Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, uh, sports nutritionist, and currently competitive bodybuilder.
1: Hey, folks. Rob Fortress-Fortney here, former editor at MuscleMag International, um, some other publications, Peak Train Journal, etc. former competitive bodybuilder and current strength training enthusiast, powerlifter.
2: And this is Phil Stevens, uh, strength coach, founder of LiftForHope.org competitive power lifter who's going for potentially a uh new record this weekend with an 804 pound rod deadlift Oh yeah that's coming coming up yeah that's sunday um so yeah sunday 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 (laughs) Sunday. (laughs) and so i'm gonna go in there and i'll rank elite and see if i can pull 804 so and then joining us today is ian king ian thanks for joining us Uh, thank you um ian's joining us from across the pond but uh We've got great sound now that we're on, we're on Skype and we've got all this internet connection. Um, for those of you guys who don't know, Ian was born on a, in an island in the Pacific. He's kind of been known throughout the, the strength community for a while and several people have said he's, he's kind of the, 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 athletic coach of the new millennium and, uh, been involved in sports and training since childhood, dedicated the bulk of his life to, uh, achieving excellence in sports and physical preparation with the lead athletes. He's trained athletes in every summer and Olympic olympic games every commonwealth games and various world cups and championships between 1986 and well present um gosh thanks again for joining us
3: Uh, you're welcome pleasure to be on your call yeah how's how's it going over there we're having an interesting time it's meant to be global warming isn't it but we're just about in a flood
2: (laughs) (laughs) wonderful (laughs) um we just want to touch on some things i mean i'm sure most of our listeners are are familiar with you but for those that aren't i mean i think it's good to just start at the beginning and you know how did you get started in the in fitness itself athletics um and then in the industry
3: great great question and i just want to separate from what what i'm seeing now is between the fitness industry and the sporting industry because that's a subject in itself but i'm seeing a pretty strong line between them but going back i had a pretty rare upbringing in that I didn't live in a house with a TV set till I was in my twenties. In fact, in the country I was born in, I heard someone had a TV, but I never saw it. Wow. <laughs> I think I think there was one. I didn't see a railway line, a, a, a tall building, or or a fast food outlet until I was in my teens. Um, it, it, basically, we just played. And if you go down to any um, third world country, and when I call them third world countries, there's no disrespect, but any island in the Pacific. Uh, you just see the kids out playing, so you know, it was a fantastic start to life. And that gene pool, that athletic pool, I believe, is dwindling. Um, so it was great, great start from there. Really, I just fell into training athletes. They, they basically found me, and and I only turned it into business when I had over an, over a hundred athletes uh, at the national international level. I thought, geez, I better be something to say the tax man keeps happy. <laughs> So that kind of segues me into my last question.
2: I mean, you just kind of fell in. I was going to ask, you know, how you got your big break breakthrough in in coaching, and it just kind of happened, I guess.
3: Yeah, I, I, when I went to when I went to the university and I started there in uh, 1980, I was in a. Probably one of the few universities in my state in that time in in a, in a physical preparation course, which was pretty rare in itself. Obviously, no one knew what strength training was in Australia in the eighties, and everyone was about aerobic fitness and corporate fitness. oh
0: yeah!
3: And, and lab testing. And if you didn't do those three, there was no future. So I, I was a little bit weird because I had this interest in uh, in, in training and strength and and athlete preparation, and no one took any notice of it, which was fantastic. And. I found a, a lecturer who was considered a bit of an oddball, and he showed me this magazine called the, the NECA Journal back there in about 1981. He showed me one, and, and uh, he said, "Ian, you can have this." So I, I joined that association about 82, and I realised that there were other people around the world actually who were involved. But I was very fortunate; I was, I was surrounded by Olympic athletes from the outset, and I just thought that was normal. You know, there was there was people in the gym there that trained in all sports, and I just I was training with them. I think that the main reason athletes were attracted to me is because. I just trained. I didn't go to lectures too much, but I trained a lot. <laughs> yeah.
2: I think you have a lot in common with many of us, but uh, you know, a lot of time under the bar, and uh, I think that's one one thing that we can all get a little, we have an appreciation for. I mean, there's there's a lot of people, even Lonnie. You know, he's got too many degrees for me to even think about, and but a lot of time under the bar as well.
0: Well, I can tell um, you, um, Phil. You said- I'm sorry. Go
3: ahead. He probably says words I don't even understand. Oh, I don't know about
0: that. All I know is I I had a very similar sort of uh, experience at university. Uh, I wasn't at university until '88, is when I started. So I'm a little bit behind you there, Ian. But uh, it was the same thing. I was like the oddball strength trainer guy, and everybody, you know, they used to make fun of me about my VO2 max. You know, my aerobic capacity was so poor. Um, because I just, I was just lifting heavy, low rep kinds of stuff. And, you know, it was just blasphemy because everything was aerobics and, you know, and conditioning, aerobic conditioning kinds of stuff, uh, in the late eighties and and early nineties. And the strength thing just didn't really take off until later. And now I feel a little vindicated, you know, I mean, my only defense back then, they'd say, oh, well, you know, Lonnie, you know. We'll just run away from you. And I'm like, well, first of all, I'm going to catch you before you get out of the room. And secondly, <laughs> you're lucky that I don't pin you down and eat you for your protein content. Because, you know, Mr. Slow Twitch Runner, you know, you're do So the whole crocodile versus bird analogy started flying around, you know, the comparative physiology stuff. and I, Anyway, I'm on a tangent now. But it's the same thing, you know, the same kind of thing. It was the oddball back, in I think, in the 80s that was really interested in strength. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get tell some funny stories. I was in a, I was in a, a gym with Charles Pollock in the late 80s in Australia at the national convention. and Two other presenters came in, all sweaty and looked like that bloke who used to run the TV show for uh, aerobic dance on uh, American TV, and and they 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 made fun of us. You know, we we were the you know they were the aerobes and we were the anaerobes. But by the 90s, you know, both of them wanted to become strength experts. But that's another story. <laughs>
2: Speaking of the industry, I thought this might be an interesting one. I want you to kind of narrow it down, if you could. Maybe give one thing right now you're seeing that you really like, and then one thing that you really don't like that's going on and becoming popular.
3: Well, the industry, like you know, any any plane flight, doesn't doesn't go in a straight line. So you know, you, you can say it's generally improving, but it's not going in a in a straight line. I, I get to travel the world, which is which is nice. Uh, you know, except you get a bit tired of travel, of course. But I, I, I like going to other cultures and seeing what happens. And and I got to tell you, the probably the, the biggest impact on the world at the moment is the internet. Um, and I can go to a country and I can tell you whether they're 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 seeing from the same uh, um, tune page that that the Americans are because the internet is very easily to dominate with marketing and. It's almost like um, you know the white people going into an indigenous culture and 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 saying, "Listen, be like us," and it's never the same after that. So, I I actually I think the you know there's upsides and downsides of in the internet, but I have to say that the the impact of the internet would be one of the greatest uh, impacts on the industry because I, I was obviously been involved now for thirty years, my thirty-first year, and it's it's just it's so significant. It's it's like Hollywood in cyberspace. You know the impact it can have.
2: Yeah. You're definitely not the first person to say that one. I, mean, I think that's been the resounding thing. Anything right now that sticks out to you is just inherently wrong.
3: Yeah. No, I used to really enjoy buying books in the, in the eighties from people who actually um, lived what they wrote about and had achieved great right things. You know, mastery 10 years minimum plus and maybe I'll share my, my wisdoms with you. Mm-hmm. And you, you go to a bookshop now and you just look at it and then, because I've been around a while, like, yeah, it's it's pretty tough. If you're coming the industry now, you know, w- what do you learn from? Where do you start? Because, you know, in in the '80s, if you collected every book you could on strength training, you'd have a pretty small library, but you could believe it all. Yeah. And there was there was some beautiful stuff. I mean, people say that you know, there was no science to it. Well, you know, science is a little bit of a historian, and now you know, we, 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 that's a topic in itself. But basically, if I look at my collection of books from the '70s and the '80s, they're probably the greatest treasure. And now, you know, you could throw a dart, that'd be, and you'd probably have more luck as a newcomer in the, in the industry determining what to start with. So, you know, the upside and the downside of the information age is that, you know, it is easier to disseminate information and, and you know who I am, otherwise, you know, perhaps you wouldn't know, but the flip side of that is, you know, we just, there are just so many, so many options and so many people who are writing that stuff that, yeah, and I, I'd actually prefer to learn from someone who's paid their dues or is uh, the former NFCA the director used to say, Ian, you've painted your weights. You know, it's another American term. I think the old strength coaches could relate to. Yeah.
2: Yeah. For sure. Um, everybody can find you mainly at what is it? kingsports.net.
3: Um, yeah, kingsports. I I try not to be found too easy, but
2: you know, I've got a love-hate relationship with marketing and the internet. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just uh, tell us what you got going on. What what do you have coming up right now? Anything exciting you want
3: to talk about? Yeah. What just, just very briefly. I spent the first 20-plus years of my involvement in the industry training elite athletes. I was, was, that's all I did from the get-go in terms of I, I've never worked with general population to any great extent. I, I had a part-time job in, in my undergraduate years in a gymnasium as a gym instructor, but apart from that, I, I, I didn't even know general population existed. What's been really interesting for me over the last decade was because I've, I've got quite a few kids now, is that I've gone out with them and, and got them involved in a variety of sports, and I've, I've looked at the way they've been coached. And it's really completed the picture for me because whilst I started at the top end and I've, and I've seen coaching at the elite level, now in the last decade, I've seen coaching at the beginning level and, and, and having a great interest in multi-year periodization or the uh, cradle to grave concept of athlete preparation, because I believe training is for life. It, it's, it's an, an amazing insight to not just read books and, and, and hear about the, the limitations of, of coaching at, at the younger ages, but actually Not only be involved, but be involved in such a personal way because your kid's future is involved. So I've had, I think I've I've completed the circle of coaching now that I've seen the very beginning and obviously I'll work with my kids through that. So my, my focus is now is asking a question. How can we help coaches at all levels, all sports, all countries working with both genders give that athlete the, the best opportunity they can have to fulfill their potential? Not how can we make them the best athlete, but how can we give them the opportunity to fulfill their potential and that begins when the child is basically in the womb i mean it, it almost begins before but that's that's where my focus is completing the circle of athlete preparation from cradle to grave
2: wow that's that's a big topic in and of itself like you were saying um that the comment on it almost starts begin. Before when they're in the womb, um yeah, sounds like epigenetics, yeah, yeah, into the genetics of it and whatnot, which I think we come into a lot, but yeah,
1: well, I certainly like the idea of like that like not just um you know preempting the whole skill training portion of it with uh, you know even a psychological kind of a preparation
3: yeah, well this is this is this is some of the key points because when when the coaches of the young athlete go out you know. The, the, their focus is amazing. Like, I tell you, one of the biggest mistakes I'm seeing coaches make at this level is because uh, physical preparation is so now well-promoted at the senior ranks, I, I've got coaches with kids under the age of 10 that, that are prioritizing with physical preparation, and they can't even catch and pass. So yeah. th- there's a whole lot of education that I believe needs to go out there globally to even the concept of from from the 2 to of, of uh, speed, strength, endurance, flexibility, which one... Uh, which one do we prioritize first? And from the athletic preparation, psychological, technical, tactical, and physical, which one do we prioritize first? And th- they're real simple concepts, but they have so much power and-, and so much opportunity to change the athlete's future if we implement them right rather than just relying on you know the kid that got through the crack, so to speak. But the real powerful thing about money periodization is you can write books about it, but if you, f- if you follow someone's career, and typically an-, an athlete is at the elite level for 10 to 15 years if they are lucky, But if you want to understand multi-periodization, you have to follow an athlete's career for minimum of 20 to 40 years. So in my lifetime, I might see two to four cycles. So it's it's something that requires you to be in in the trenches, so to speak, for a, a long period of time with one athlete or with one group of athletes, but you only get so many shots at it. And that's why I believe so few people have... Taking the time or, or being motivated, driven to really follow this because it's a you have to be patient. This is not you know we're in a world of instant gratification. We, we want to be instant gurus in eighteen months. We want to get our black belt yesterday. <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to understand, and If I do this with a child at the age of six, what impact does that have on them when they are forty-six? Now that's a holy ball game. And yeah. my my attitude is uh, sport is about play, but sport is also about what's it going to do to your later life. I don't want people to have hip surgery. I don't want them to have replacement hips and knees. And we are doing things to people now that I can guarantee we are filling the coffers of the orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. And, you know, people say, well, you know, we don't, why, do you want, why do you want to do this, Anne? Because I, because I want you to live the natural term of your life with your body. I don't want you to have plastic bits. But anyway, I digress. <laughs>
0: right. You know, I'm so glad that you're talking about, there's a real theme on Iron Radio over the past several months about, getting away from, I don't know if it's an American phenomenon or not, but this whole instant gratification thing, we've talked about that a lot, you know, the whole joke about, oh, six weeks to bigger guns, you know, and then people say, hell with that, how about 18 months, you know, or doing year-long periods in your periodization or, you know, that kind of patience. And I think I might have mentioned this before, but I think some of this has to do with maturity and youth too because when you're as old as the guys on this call, and we're not old people, but – you know, you have a my little bit more.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we
0: we a year just doesn't seem like that long to us, yeah. and I think a year seems like an eternity to a nineteen-year-old. Uh, but but it, anyway, I digress too. But the point being is, it's another welcome perspective for young listeners. I think, you know, that these things take time, and it's even a lifelong commitment.
3: It is not just American because uh, this is this is my perspective as an international traveler. If it's an American perspective, it's a global perspective. Because in the same way that Hollywood has dominated the, the silver screen, you, your American market has now dominate cyberspace. I mean, I, I went into South America in the 80s, and I saw pictures of bodybuilders from the 60s. I mean, there was a time warp of 20 to 30 years, and they were still sure that those bodybuilders looked the same and, and did the same things, and they still did the same things. So any, anything that's happening in your neck of the wood, so to speak, unfortunately at this point in time, is is being... Uh, propagated throughout the world and this whole instance of gratification it's been driven in part by marketing because you know we used to put out monthly magazines, now we put out weeklies and then we put out you know and it's got mm-hmm. down every second. in fact if it's not five lines long it's too it's mm-hmm. too long. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, right. for
3: sure. If you want if you want to get if you want to look big, fantastic pumpy guns. But if you want to get genuinely big, mm-hmm. understand that if you want to look big with your clothes on it's going to be a long, slow process. And done, <laughs> right. At least,
1: that, that's a great way of putting it. Actually. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, yeah.
3: But those days have gone because you know you go out and deadlift for, for for two years and you'll develop strength and, and size it. You know you won't see it but but on the track, you know you, you'll have something that no one else has. So, you know, I've got philosophies about you know, the, the, and nothing overly unique in that, um Bill Starr was writing about this in the seventies. I mean, you do that you, you, expanding concentric circle on the body. In in, in the '70s, saying you know, start with the core because when I'm when I'm 80 or 90, I'll still go out there and I can do a bicep and a tricep exercise. When when I won't be doing too many knee exercises. You know, I won't be yeah. squatting and defting to any great extent. So, listen, while you're young, get big and strong in the center of your body yeah. and worry about the, the, the peripherals at a later date. And the, the great thing with athletes is exactly the same thing. I mean, when I work with a lead athlete who generally puts their body on the line, most of them can't walk 10 years later. I mean, so, you know, don't want mm. to you your 20s, Get big and strong.
1: Yeah. Well, that always um, follows along with what I've always said about, you know, how you get a lot of guys in powerlifting who are phenomenons for, you know, and Phil knows what I'm talking about, for, you know, maybe a few years. They kind of rise to fame at 20, 25, and, you know, they they take all the, you know, quote-unquote shortcuts to get to that level. Um, then you never hear from them again. Just it's something I've said very many times in the past to people, and I'm sure maybe you guys have heard me say this before. I, I liken it to, like, you know, dropping an engine that, it is way beyond the horsepower of what the chassis was ever meant to, you know, take. And then you hit the gas and you twist the hell out of the whole frame. I mean, you know, these, so many young guys today, you know, with, with the help of chemicals, and with the help of, um, you know, um, really fine tuning, you know, the, their leverages with, and then, then of course using all the support gear and so forth. But they never were really meant to handle the kind of weights that they're lifting. And consequently, their careers are so short and or they have to have, again, like, Surgery, and you never hear from them again. So, I mean, I, I I, I really just don't think a 165 pound man was ever supposed to squat 800 pounds. I'm sorry, it it just doesn't seem feasible to me.
0: I I see the same thing across across the strength sports. You could include bodybuilding and strength sports, which is arguable, but you know what I mean. Is the the career spans? You know, Ian was saying, you know, 10 or 15 years if you're lucky. I mean. I think about some of my heroes like Frank Zane. You know, those guys are still in shape and or Bill Pearl who still, you know, uh, squats a lot of weight, you know, he's a man's man. And yet, you know, you see some of these guys now they're around for literally like 3 or 4 years if they're lucky and they they burn out.
2: Well, how much of this though is no matter when a, a record's set, it's going to be broken by somebody. And it's just what it takes to get there. I mean, if you're a top-of-fuel dragster, you know, and that's just human nature, you know, so... Yeah, it's like an arms I mean, race. It's
0: escalation. Yeah, yeah.
2: it's and it's going to happen. I mean, and to make it that next step, you know, I think none of us would argue that elite strength has anything to do with health. It just doesn't. Elite sports have nothing to do with health. And but to you get know what? that next level you're gonna you're gonna have injuries you're gonna do damage to your body you know the, the top fuel dragster motor isn't going to last as long as a prius motor you know if, but you've but got straight one or two from, runs on that thing
1: you know but straight from the lips of even louis simmons you know when i was talking to him several months ago his you know we got into the whole concept of you know monoliths and you know adjusting people's techniques so they you know maximize thoroughly their leverages and their mechanics and you know all the support gear and all this kind of stuff and you know, I was playing Devil Devil's Advocate for you know this portion of the call, and and Louis even said he said, you know, we've gotten to the point now where all these things at this point have been maximized to the point where the guys now to break those records have just got to get stronger. Yeah, and and that was the one thing he said that I really did appreciate and certainly agreed with. Yeah. You know, I mean, at some just... point at some point athletes just gotta get better. They've got to get stronger.
2: You yeah, know, but how far can the natural human body how much better can it get? How much stronger have we really gotten in the last twenty years?
1: Well, that's the whole thing, and I think a lot of what's happened lately has kind of skewed people's perceptions, certainly yeah. in the in the strength and size, you know, bodybuilding end of things, it's skewed people's perceptions of yeah. kind of how much they can expect as far as, you know, um advancement. I mean, if you really look at how strong guys have you know the human strength potentials have have kind of advanced in like 50 years. You know you're you're talking minimum. I mean, guys 30 years ago were roughly raw benching yeah. the same as what guys are doing today. I mean, you yeah. know, Bill Kazmaier did what six reps with 600 pounds. Look, like, what what was that almost 30 years ago? Yeah, it does you
0: know, make I, me wonder though, Rob, that like Ian was saying, if you, if you get a hold of a kid. Yeah, uh, you're gonna you're gonna be able to train them and, and provide a stimulus nutritionally, uh, you know, physically, etc. At certain maturational periods, where you could be hitting windows of opportunity, uh, because you're, you know you're starting young. And I'm not saying we should get a hold of kids when they're really young and sort of do almost that you know that sort of mythical Eastern block thing. Well, I was, was going to say, you, yeah, you grab them up when they're three years old and. and Groom them for just one thing, but it, it, it is an interesting perspective, like Ian was saying, of you know looking at uh, the entire lifespan in in, in sort of um, meta stages, you know, or uh, not just mesocycles, but meta cycles, you know, the whole picture, overarching picture, and you know maybe you can get kids to grow up with uh, total higher, you know, ceiling, you know, physiological ceiling than if you didn't work with them when they were when they were younger. I don't
1: know. Well, I think strength sports are a perfect example of, of, of you know, like the lifestyle thing because, um, as I tell kids in the gym all the time, I mean, if, you know, if, if you want to get into a sport that gives you, you know, in relative terms, a quick turnaround of potential success in competition, um, you know, hardcore strength training sports usually is not the thing they should get involved in. I mean tell me if I'm wrong here but I mean even like guys in the MMA you see guys who do a little bit of karate you know and then, then they get to be you know they switch to mixed martial arts and three years later they're you know if, if they do have potential and talent you know they're already in the UFC whereas I don't think you're ever going to find guys who are at the upper upper echelons of the elite level in powerlifting who've been you know at it for anything less than you know 10
2: years you were going to say yeah
3: it's, it's definitely the, the ability to, to- to tweak the athletic potential of a person through different stages of life is absolutely critical. I mean, simple things like how much did your mother physically touch you, or how much were you touched as a human being, and how much movement did you experience in the first four years of your life? These are these are such little points that make such a big difference, but as you were, you were indicating, it's not, strength training is not something that you would want to prioritize and specialize in early in life. Anyway, in fact, i, I got to tell you, and it might not make too many Americans happy, but the Americans for whatever reason, have taken on a cultural belief that in all sports, if I'm strong or if I look like a bodybuilder, then I'll be a better athlete. Yeah. And that's just bullshit. Yeah. And it, it, it actually, it, that has permeated the world so badly and I've had to come up with a new saying and I'm saying, if you're more focused on what you look like than how you perform, you are stuffed. Yep. And it's not a real nice saying, but as soon as I see someone who in, in, in sport, I'm not talking about bodybuilding and thing, but as soon as I see someone in sport who's wearing their little brother's t-shirt, or they're playing jerseys. I mean, you, you can see that the pride of their life is their guns. Yeah. I say, sorry, but you're, you're not fulfilling your athletic potential. Because, exactly. you know, A, it's got a little to do with this sport, and B, the, the energy that you're putting in that means that you're not putting energy in something else. So the, the Americans, I, I think, got to take a lot of responsibility for their cultural bias towards strength alone. I mean, if you look at the history of the NECA, you start out as the Strength Coaches Association, they only slapped on the word conditioning as an afterthought, and it was even then the word conditioning only occurred because it fitted in the into the acronym, and and that occurred in, in eighty two after a, a start in 78. I started in seventy eight. And I don't mean to be rude to the people who've been so good to me over the years, but the, you're, you're you're so imbalanced in your approach to physical preparation. It's really it's really hurt the whole world because from my perspective and from the from the Eastern European perspective, you've got in in physical preparation alone, you, you've got flexibility, uh, strength, and endurance to add to the speed. Now, I, when I say endurance, don't get me wrong, I'm not a you know, that's got to be kept in context, too, because we've been down that road before. But yeah. I- the Americans have got to get off the strength bandwagon so that the rest of the world can get off the strength wagon. I'm not talking about powerlifting and weightlifting. Their strength is a criteria for yes. success. But as a general comment, I would rather have a weak athlete that's balanced in all their physical qualities and all their athletic qualities than a strong, buffed athlete who's not.
0: I'll tell you what, Ian, Uh, I used to have discussions with a strength coach uh, buddy of mine, Ray Eady, and he would used to say, you know, Lonnie, can you talk to these guys, because I was the the sports nutritionist for the team, and he was having a real problem with some of the football guys who they wanted to be bodybuilders, you know, and he's like, you know, listen, you guys, he called it the uh, look like Tarzan, play like Jane scenario, (laughs) you know. And I think that was part of the problem. You know, you, you get like linemen and, you know, they're doing biceps curls yeah. for an hour after practice and stuff. And you just can't help but think, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. You know? And- well, do we, we had a
1: guest this a couple of weeks ago that was talking about that, saying, you know, if it's gotten to the point now where for, you know, coaches in the know, if, if one of their players shows up in the, you know, in the office you know, in their regular season and they look like bodybuilders and they have really low body fat, he knows most likely that person's going to be, pretty much first on the list to be injured
3: yeah exactly that's exactly right you know one of the reasons that strength training in sport was slow to be accepted back in the 70s and the 60s is because they use bodybuilding methods and they make them they made them worth athletes now for whatever reason we've got over the acceptance issue in all sports i mean i've been at the elite level in sports where they have outright rejected strength training you know this is back in the 80s and the 90s now everybody's saying let's do strength training but guess what they're still doing the same crap and yeah. They're still getting the same problems, but they think it's okay. We're getting a whole batch of injuries that have nothing to do with the sport. Yeah, it's it's you know I, I've got swimmers in 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 our country who are getting shoulder surgery. Now you you know they don't hit the water that hard. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, we've got we've got footballers tearing their pecs, and it's got nothing to do with uh, impact in sport. I can tell you, it's yeah. just that they that they think they'll be a better athlete because they can bench big, and you know it's. It's got to be kept in context, and, and I think, um, yeah.
2: you know, there no, is something
3: I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's
2: something that me coming from a powerlifting background and then moving to Highland Games, you know, that's something I'm seeing firsthand. I am, I am overstrong for the sport and under technical. Yeah, yeah I, You know, at my time as an athlete now, as I'm transferring into this field, I'm going to have to put 10% of my time in the gym. That's it, and I need to put ninety
3: percent of it out there throwing crap. That's it, and, <laughs> and, and know, the mistake that's, that's, that's often made in that is I remember a sports scientist, uh, and I won't get too specific, but because their strength didn't transfer to the right of sports, they attempted conclude that it's inappropriate strength If you don't have the skills to put the to, to put the engine on, you know, don't blame the strength. Just get the skills back.
2: Yeah. No, yeah, and that's not. I mean, there's a reason I. You know, I jumped in. They started me. They skipped me through C class. Started me at B class, and I made it to A class after two games. That's just because I'm stupid strong. Yeah. But if I want to be good, if I want to go from A to pro, I got to put in the time. I mean, I'm not dismissing strength. You know, it got me where I'm at in a very short amount of time. But if I want to be good, now I got to put ninety percent of my time into becoming that athlete. You you know, that's not in the gym. And that's If what- I could just add, one of the things I
0: think. What we're talking about here—it it sort of segues into our, our topic, which we need to do here in a minute. But
1: yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, uh,
0: which is it, at the university that I was at most recently for half a dozen years. One of the missions of the strength conditioning program was to limit injury, and when Ian just said we're creating injuries through the strength training, that's literally the antithesis of the mission statement, right? right? I mean, the whole purpose of, of developing strength, balanced strength, was a support uh, for, uh, for the actual sport, you know, a, a support for it, uh, uh, to create a, a healthier scenario, not set someone up with uh, you know some kind of muscular imbalance or overdeveloped in, in, you know, in the wrong direction and actually cause injuries. That's just absurd.
3: That's, I take on the, the medical philosophy as first do no harm, and... and... When you've got an athlete who's, for whatever reason, made it through the range, they're good because they're good. And, and if the, the, probably the, I, I've got more chance of hurting them in a long-term scenario than and doing it. And, and I think that, for example, if I get an athlete who's avoided strength training until they're 16 or 18 years, I go, hallelujah, and bow down to them because I know I can start them from a, a fresh perspective and keep them alive. But if you get someone who started earlier, you know, they've got so many muscle imbalances and, and so many imbalances between their strength and their skill that I, you, know, you just want to shake your head and walk away. So the whole concentration and, and we can talk more about the, the injury. You that I actually don't believe that anyone in sports medicine really wants us to make them unemployed. So I, I, I've had this debate with journalists saying, "Listen, technology has really improved injury," and I, and I said, "No, it's improved injury treatment. It's improved the quality of the joint replacements we're giving people, but we, we haven't applied any of our technology to reducing the incidence or the severity of the injury in the first place."
0: That's why it's hard to get away from a reactive medical uh, you know, approach and, and move toward a proactive one because, like you said, you're, you're putting the orthopods out of work. You're putting the athletic trainers and all of the people who, you know, who are waiting to help with this stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. Injuries are going to happen anyway. Um, sure, they are. But I can also see you know, there are financial drivers that keep us away from a, a proactive type of system. Now, unfortunately, though, I think with enough time, you could evolve a way. You're not going to jump away immediately, but you could evolve a way where we just start to value prevention and balance and things like that more, and you know, we may end up with less need for the reactive medical side. Exactly,
3: and it's, it's an ec- economic reality. If you look at the electric car or, or energy-efficient vehicles, I mean, we're still crushing them out in the desert. We're still crushing injury prevention out in the desert because from an economic perspective, we, we haven't adapted to the economic shift in where the money's going to flow from the injury side of things, because all these people who have who've got a financial and, and, and otherwise investment in injury rehabilitation, if we were to bring in so-called electric car today, you know the, the, the gas pumps would be out of out of business. So you know, I, I have some empathy for them, but if it was my kid, and that's why I look at every athlete. If you're my kid, listen, I'm not too concerned whether I'm putting you out of a job because I actually care about my child. I care about the athlete. Yeah.
2: How much of this new injury would you say, though, is due to? Like you talked about earlier, the, those first even one to four, let's say one to eight years.
3: Well, I can you tell know, you... where
2: kids now, kids now are plopped in front of a TV. Yep. Whereas when I was a kid, by the eight, when I could walk, I was outside moving. And, you know, you're seeing people now trying to go from... They don't know how to walk correctly, trying to go into sports and strength training. Exactly. Now they're going from Xbox to X Games. Yes.
3: Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. I believe that the, the, the average child athlete, the average child athlete has significant damage and imbalance by the age of 10 to the point that I see the first hint of injuries around about the age of 8, 9 and 10. Now you got to understand that, from my perspective, the injury perspective, the injury process is that the 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 unconscious or the subconscious level of pain and discomfort that we all can ignore. So, and, and also because their their hormone levels are very high, they are able to recover and, and, and have some appearance of recovery of the joint surfaces a lot quicker. But the actual foundations of long-term injuries are laid before the age of 10. Now, imagine if we were to, to were to remove those, it, we would it would be exponential the impact on their lives. So it's, the, it's it's the inability of, of, of our industry to recognise the injury potentials at their early stages. So I've, I've, I've seen enough anecdotal information now to confirm that by the age of 10, it is, they are imbalanced. And I'm seeing that in my own kids. I'm, I can identify length, uh, flexibility imbalances right to left at a relatively early age, and they're in a great environment. So what about the kids who aren't? So the, the, the little leopard that becomes a big leopard and kills, that's an old South African saying, it starts at a very very early age and in actual fact the earlier we enter our children into athlete training of any sort the earlier the injuries show their head but because we don't know when I say we being collectively we don't know the signs we're looking for then the monster gets so big that in many cases it never gets pushed out it never goes away but I'm talking about a really high, high level and I don't want to get too abstract but I, I, I guess I just have too much care for people and, and when I see these imbalances, it just hurts me to see the, the long-term potential of the athlete be damaged so early in their life. But uh, again, I digress. My apologies.
0: Well, I'll tell you what. Let's, let's just uh, move quickly uh, to the topic of the day here. I just want to touch it, it on does, it does it is related. Um, first, let's break just for a moment for some public service messages. Fortress. What is best in life? If you need a break from listening to these barbarians and you want to read something intellectual, check out the library at www.ironradio.org. The feature article this month is about a conference that took place in Canada, an exercise physiology conference, where the researchers were literally trying to answer questions like the optimal number of sets and intensity for maximal protein synthesis and muscle growth. There's other juicy material there like the effects of cortisol and adding more fat cells to your physique over time, how women recover better than men, and tons more. So if you're interested in reading as well as listening, check out www.ironradio.org and our article library. Thanks. Um, So today's topic is um, ripped or just skinny. And... The reason that we're bringing this up is because, I mean, Phil's had a few recent tirades. As I mentioned earlier about, you know, uh, some of the power lifters who believe they're big and strong when maybe they're just fat. Um, and I think the whole skinny thing also plays into the injury topic that we've been talking about, too. And, Rob, I wanted to ask you, and I know Phil has a lot of thoughts about this with athleticism as well, but um, from a bodybuilding perspective, you know, of course, Rob, you've got probably the most experience with, them, um, you know, top ranked amateurs and, and pro bodybuilders just as far as you know your uh, editorial work and everything but what do you what do you think about this how common it is uh, as far as you know people obsessing over being ripped and we were talking about obsessing over being muscular and looking like a bodybuilder and part of that is extremely low body fat so how common do you think that is among young aspiring bodybuilder guys
1: i i think it's it's prevalent to the degree that it's it's almost universal when you go to these you know really low ranked shows where you know you're talking about 16 17 18 19 year old kids competing and I know you know this is bringing this is something Lonnie always says but you know the whole concept of a lot of these amateur shows are ab are shows um, and you and I have joked about that before um, you know I, I think a lot of these young guys really kind of lose focus about you know really what is bodybuilding big with bodybuilding leanness, um, versus what is just downright skinny. I mean, you look at a lot of guys who, um, even like the UFC and so forth, these really light, lighter body weights, and like, oh, look at this guy, look how strong he is. And you're like, no, he's just really lean. Um, because, of course, there's a, there's a, and again, this is going back to what I was saying before, there's such a, because of, ke- you know, chemicals and drugs and all these types of things, there's a really skewed perception of, um, Really, um, fundamentally strong and powerful, and, and you know, athletic in, in an explosive sense, you can be, um, and, and still be 140 pounds. I mean, it, it, there's a certain
0: line that needs to be drawn with that. Yeah, I think one of my concerns is, is from again from the bodybuilding side of things, is at a, at an early amateur show, low level amateur shows become dieting contests, which I think is just downright bizarre. It's sort yes, of you know absolutely. It, you know, antithesis to what bodybuilding is Absolutely. supposed to be. Absolutely. Uh, and that's what I, I, I just want to sort of touch on a little bit. And Phil, I know you have some thoughts about that too. Do you see a lot of the uh, I mean,
2: do you see much at all of that gotta be ripped mentality? Oh, it's, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, it's, it's very prevalent. I work and, and train in a very athletic-minded gym. And, you know, it's honestly more from the guys from the women now. But, you know, you'll get, I'll have people come in and they want to get stronger. They want to get better at their sport. And, oh, they, but they don't want to look like, you know, the biggest thing I get is like, well, okay, you know, you, you want to be an Olympic lifter. But they don't want to look like the Olympic lifting kids, chicks because they're big and fat. And we're looking at like 62K lifters and stuff. And i like, you think they're thick? You know? yeah. I mean, that yeah. girl would run circles around you with you over her head. And the, the level of leanness that media is portraying as normal is just sick. And, and it's leading to eating disorders. It's leading to, I mean, just problems across the, across the gamut in performance, health, injury. Um, people expect to be able to walk around at this, this unnatural leanness. Yeah, like perform- 4% or something. Yeah, yeah and perform- or women walking around at like 8%. Yeah. And it's like, that's just not right. Well, you know
1: what? Go you ahead. Know, oh, sorry. You know what really kills it for me? I mean, you look at, if you look at Rocky, what is it, Six, you know, and the guy who actually is Rocky's kind of, you know, a, a opponent in that, who actually is a real life boxer. I remember, I can't remember his name right now, but I remember the person that I saw the movie with saying, geez, he doesn't. I even said to them, well, you know, he's a real life world class boxer. Well, he doesn't look like much. You know, yeah. because it, you know, cause he's not ripped like, you know, maybe like uh, you know, Apollo Creed or something like that. And uh, something that might be a touchstone for more people out there in the immediate is that the whole kind of thing that's going on off about the, you know, the mixed martial artist Fedor Emelianenko. I mean, yeah. here's a guy that everybody always talks about. Well, he doesn't look like much. He doesn't look like much. And my question is, well, when you say he doesn't look like much, what do you mean? Do you mean that he doesn't look like that kind of that, you know... Um, like has been said by Ian before, that Americanized kind of version of, you know, like the slick six pack and the, you know, the perfect skin tone with the tan and all that kind of
0: stuff. Rob, you, you know. just mentioned uh, movies. I just, this just popped into my head, but I remember you and I discussing in the, the first Hulk film, the Hulk was thick and he was very muscular, but he had a little bit of body fat. I know this is CGI, but bear with me. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in the, the later Hulk film, he had abs. He was suddenly shredded. Yeah. You know, it's like... I don't know. It just it just sort of echoes what we're talking about here. No. You know what I mean? Like, the, as if the Hulk isn't
2: muscular enough or strong enough, we need to rip him up a little bit. No, heck, yeah. I mean, that goes down to even toys. Have you guys seen uh, Bigger, Stronger, Faster? Yes, yes. Sure. Yeah, they went through the G.I. Joes from 1960 up to now. Right, right. And, you know, you saw them get more ripped, more ripped, more ripped, more ripped. You know, the guy's to Where you got you know a little plastic doll with things <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll
1: go back to the same thing before. this whole you know the whole proliferation of drugs and the use of drugs and, and, and has really messed people's perceptions because they see guys who are ridiculously powerful and strong who do have six packs they don't realize that for the, and the natural athlete that is largely just not going to happen. I have kids come up to me at the gym all the time, and they, oh, I want my squat bigger. I want my squat bigger. I want this bigger. And and you know they're 160 pounds, you know, with with the six pack. And I'm yeah, like, you t- just- yeah. yeah, I'm like, well, you're going to have to accept that you're going to have to lose a little bit of that. And I'm not saying you have to get fat and sloppy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you'll have to, you know, not worry so much about that, and maybe he's losing a little bit of that, and I mean, it's just almost like I'm telling them that their mother's a whore, like it's like <laughs> you know, they, they just can't comprehend the whole concept of doing that, my whole thing is, listen you know, what is your end game here, what are you trying to achieve, and if that's right. the then you got to just put aside that I mean, you know, do you think a guy like Brad Gillingham cares because some people in uh, Montana's restaurant might be like, oh he's really big, yeah, but man he look, look how fat his gut is He doesn't care. You know, he's twenty nine hundred pounds. He
0: doesn't give a crap. Well, let me get Ian's perspective on something. Uh, I I think that the issue is, like you said, end game or purpose. I think the problem here is when the purpose becomes to get lean. Instead of, like, if you look at sprinters, they're shredded, those guys. You know, Uh, they get They go out. And are they obsessing over leanness as their primary goal? No, they're not. You know? It's a, it's
3: a welcome side effect, sort of, right. of what they do. And I think Ian's written about scriptures and getting meat before, haven't you? Well, I've got to, I've got to get, throw in my two cents worth. And you know, I've been very consistent in saying this right throughout my career, and this is, it might not be well accepted, but this is what I say. There is no correlation between body fat and athletic performance, generally speaking. You, 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 I have never seen anything empirically or scientifically to support that belief. So when someone comes and says to me, listen, I want to be 2% leaner, I'm talking about a general athlete, not a bodybuilder, I mean, you think that's going to improve your athleticism? I can tell you now the athletes that have been most damaged by this perspective, in my observation, have have the the, the sprinters that have wanted to to say, well, I want to put on weight because I want to go into football, I want to take my speed into football, but they can't put on weight. They can't put on weight because they're worried about losing that six-pack. And we've got coaches who now believe that they can look at an athlete and say, yeah, he looks in shape, just like the general population. I mean, they wouldn't know what in shape was from one end of their, their digestive system to the other to be as polite as I can. You know, you, you can't look at someone's body fat and tell me that they're in shape. Now, that might work in bodybuilding, but it doesn't work in general sport. So I've got a real problem with body fat from the first instance because I want you to, I want you to look like the shape of the athlete who's successful in that sport. As in, I don't want you to look like the perception of it. I actually want to worry about the athletic shape. I'm, I'm gonna. i've got another bit i want to throw in there but i might want well let you digest that one um but i, I have got something more i want to add in, in, in a minute
1: okay i don't so think, i don't think anybody here would disagree with anything you just said
3: no no, no you, you probably wouldn't uh, like
0: I, my, I guess my point was that you know you you can see sprinters become
2: lean because they're sprinting
3: all yes, the time yes that's right oh exactly and but yeah
0: the, the flip side of course would be a problem right when the primary focus of that sprinter becomes getting shredded Yep. well I, you know you could argue he's not really a sprinter anymore i don't know what he is he's a hybrid athlete
3: I, 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 well you know
0: it,
1: it, sorry i was just gonna say say that you know you look at a lot of the you know the the, the what is referred to as gh guts and stuff and bodybuilding these days and stuff and, and i mean okay that's great and everything and yeah i'm sure all that you know heavy testosterone and heavy gh you know manifests itself by, at least partially in these kind of bloated guts, but you also have to remember the guys who have the really tight wasps with body and the guys who are always like, you know, sub 220, I don't care, like, I mean, I, now that I've switched from bodybuilding to powerlifting, I can tell you without question, if you get to be a certain size, a certain strength, and you're, uh, you know, you're, you're constantly eating it as much as you do, and you're constantly lifting what you do, like, you know, on the basic lifts, you're... Your midsection is just going to grow, and I'm not even just talking about—I'm not talking about fat accumulation either. I'm just talking about the expansion of the whole gut muscular. Body. It just happens, and yeah, so is- I think you know. while partial of it is the high GH levels and testosterone of these guys. The, fe- the simple fact that these guys are now you know stepping on stage at two seventy, two eighty, two ninety, three hundred pounds—I mean, they're big men lifting. I mean, maybe not relative to a power of the same of the same body weight, but they're big men lifting. Big weights, and that over time, that's just going to result in a lot of distension in the gut. It's I, just going to happen.
3: I'm going to show you something. On so that.
1: I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying, basically going with what Lonnie says about the whole kind of like the byproduct in sprinting as being lean because of what you do. Um, the byproduct of lifting tons of weight and being a really heavy, heavy person, lifting a lot of weight over extended periods of time, the byproduct is just going to be a little bit of a. Uh, hey, you're going to have a gut.
3: I, I'm going to add to that, and uh, I'm going to make this correlation. Anybody who lifts. With a belt, which you will do in heavy lifting at some point in time. If you're a powerlifter, you will lift with a belt. Will always have the appearance of an extended stomach. That is a that is a natural adaptation of the muscular system to the the creating the um, the airbag in response to the belt. So you, you, right on. You, 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 I'm telling you now, if you lift heavy and use a belt, which which is normal, when you go super heavy, that's just life. You are going to look like you've got a GH cut you know, it's what you're talking about. Well,
0: on, on some level. Yeah, well, because I'll tell you what. Like, I, I still have a penchant for squatting as heavy as I can. It's just one of those performance lifts. I mean, I, maybe from a bodybuilding perspective, I, I could mix it up more. Maybe I overdo it. But when someone says, Lonnie, what's your waist size? Well, you know, if you're going to measure at the umbilicus, if you're going to measure right at my belly button, you know, well, God, I don't know I, how, how hard do you want me to tighten my abs. Because if I relax, I do have a bit of a stretched you know, uh, abdominal wall there a little bit because when I squat, that's what I do. Exactly. You know, the belt's just below it, uh, and that's how I do it. And I you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But again, it makes it really hard to say. So, well, I guess if I tighten my waist down, I have like a 28 inch waist, but that's not what I look like standing, just standing relaxed.
2: It's so, like my leg. You know. Oh, oh. <laughs> 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 Mine too, brother. <laughs>
0: Uh, Ian, what was it that you, you said you were going to chime in with one more thing?
3: Yeah, yeah, that point you made about, I also believe that body fat should be a byproduct of what you do, not the purpose of your training. Now, that might be different for bodybuilding, but for all other athlete pursuits, all other walks of life, if body fat is not a byproduct of what you do, you're probably going to fail. And it goes right back to the Buckminster Fuller theory of procession, said that, that, that things happen often at a 90 degree angle of, of your pursuit. I have no interest in, in getting someone body fat as their primary focus, but if we are, in, to use a, a, a simple old psychological media term, if I'm in the zone, if I, I'm living well and if I'm focused and I'm enjoying, if I'm really in the groove of what I'm doing, I will lower my body fat. So the point you made about it being a bright bright, that's a big one for me, but it wasn't the point I was going to make. I'm just going to take a break, but I've got one big, big one to come back on.
2: Okay. No, I mean, I totally agree there, and I mean, I've, I've said this to people when it came from my, my schooling in architecture and architecture and sculpture and ceramics and stuff like that, and I've just transferred it into, into training. Your form, form follows function. Yes. You know, the function is the primary thing, and if you just aim for that first... You're going to look like that. I exactly. guarantee you, if you can deadlift 800 pounds, and if you can sprint
3: in sub-10 seconds, you're going to look like you can do it. Exactly.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. Which is the whole weird thing conundrum about bodybuilding, because you get
1: a guy like Jay Cutler, who's like, when somebody asks him how much you bench, you know, do you bench 500 pounds? He's like, well, I don't really care about benching 500 pounds, so I just care about looking like I can do it. To, to me, when I heard him say that, that, that threw me into all sorts of fits inside. I was like, that's a ridiculous comment. Now, of course, again, um, relative to the fact that he's not powerful, Jay Cutler is a very strong man um, by nature, the fact that he's just so big and on so much stuff. But, but, but I mean, it just, it just really pissed me off. I'm like, you know what? It, it goes, to, it, it, all the people that were in the seminar that day, all these kids listening to him, it perpetuates the whole thing of, okay, I'm going to the gym because I want to be big. I've always said that's a losing proposition if you want to be big go into the gym and be strong because like cool. Phil says form of function and if you become very strong and you know people always have this perception that strength is just you know well I'm not a powerlifter, I don't care about one rep max is, well you know okay well let's talk about sets of 10 then strength within the boundaries of sets of 10 I mean if you go in the gym and you go with that mindset of, okay I'm going to improve my you know um, sets of 10 on in squat with the same form and same mechanics it's it 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 absolutely follows that you will become bigger. So you got to think in terms of, I want to be stronger, not in terms of, I want to be bigger. Because I want to be bigger is
0: kind of like, well, where do you go from there?
1: But yeah, if you want to be stronger, you can
0: measure that, and you can work towards it. Yeah, there's no body fat equivalent to that, parallel to that, I don't think, really, except for you know focusing on your sport, letting all the calorie expenditure just handle that for you. Exactly. You know what I mean? But I, I, I like what you're saying because it's that all show or no go or Tarzan Jane or whatever you want to call it analogy where you, you do you see people like that who are in positions of authority, even though they're not educated, unfortunately, usually, and they make it okay to these young ears that are listening that. Oh, you know, it's it's okay to be to sort of false advertise, you know, to be ripped or to go for being huge, and you know, you get your ass kicked by a twelve-year-old kid, you know. Uh, so that kind of thing just seems disingenuous to me. That sort of false advertising um, media perspective that, that we spill, and you know, even and again, even the bodybuilder should be saying, "Listen, I'm strong, I'm ripped, because it's specifically what I do." But, you know, Rob, you remember years ago we were – I think it was in Muscle Mag International. There was that sprint competition between a couple of pro bodybuilders, and they made well, it like 14, yeah. 15 uh. feet before they <laughs> tore their
1: hamstrings or something. Yeah, that was Samir Banu and uh, hmm. Gary on I believe. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, the whole thing is this, right? I mean, like form comes function. If you're a, you know, a long-distance runner, eventually you're going your, your physique, if you achieve success in, in that goal – you're going, your physique is going to reflect that. And, and by virtue of that, like Phil's saying, if you're if you're deadlifting 800 pounds, squatting 800 pounds, I mean, I'm sorry, but at that point, you're going to look like a beast. If you don't want to look like a beast, then don't try and squat 800 pounds. Because if you ever succeed at it, it's almost impossible that you're not going to be. You're not going to be some wicked wasp-waist, uh, you know, chick magnet on the beach. I mean, you're going to look like a brute. You're, you are. You're just going to look like a brute. It's impossible not to. You know, I don't... I, I, I dare say that i've never seen a man you know who weighs 300 pounds but is you know a, a top ranked athlete in his um you know in his sport of course if you're 300 pounds and you're you know in top ranked it would be a strength sport i've never seen the guy like that and say oh yeah look at look at his nice you know nice clean
0: lines and you know he looks real lithe on his feet and, i mean it's it's not you're gonna look like a beast right even Phil, with his aesthetic art, you know, masters in art and all that music, I, Phil's even laughing at that. Phil doesn't want to see beautiful lines on a 300-pound lineman. I <laughs> were
2: talking about this last night. Um, one of the gals at the gym was actually complimenting one of the power lifters that's like 310 pounds on how. How aesthetically pleasing he was. Oh, we're wow. like, okay, well, if a cinder block is pleasing, you <laughs> know, it's just a big box. <laughs> but uh,
1: yeah, yeah. well, I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder, of course. Yeah. But
0: yeah. yeah, well, obviously, yeah. The more you know, you can appreciate you know the thickness and the breadth of someone's shoulders, for example. Yeah. You can see power in a physique. Well, of course, yeah, of course. And, and there are physiques that are big and like balloon animal physiques, like the way Flex Wheeler used to be. And I, I you know, I, and I'm sure Flex was strong. You know, and don't get me wrong, but he never had that sort of brutal power look that some of the power bodybuilders like Dorian had. You know, and he... Well, that's why put... the
1: whole thing, where the classic clash was for those, you know, several years was Flex Wheeler and Dorian, right? And, and people would say, well, who's better? And, you know, he deserved to win, or he deserved to win. I'm like, well, you know, you're looking at two dis- completely different animals here. It's not really fair. I mean, I can
0: appreciate both of them aesthetically for different reasons, you know, so... Well, listen, we're just about out of time, and I wanted to hear uh, Ian's final... Uh, comment there he made a, he said he wanted to say
3: one last thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. What do you got there? Yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. I, I call the I call the eighties a decade of, of aerobics, the nineties a decade of strength, and the noughties the post two thousand decade, the decade of the fat loss guru, because all of a sudden we had industry people thinking, Well, what can I do to be popular? So everybody started writing articles about how to lose body fat. Now, that hasn't helped. That that the whole that, that's just bullshit. And on top of that, if I could get i'm going to be careful because I don't want to offend men's health, but if we could put you know some sort of cover on their cover, so you know the athletes that I'm going to be work with don't see that that would be good as well and if I, if I if I can get all the books you've got in America about about how to look you know all your abdominal books all your you know get a six pack overnight books and pile them up and burn them it'd be a great day so you know we've <laughs> yeah, they're not helping.
0: You know, to well, follow that up, just just to sort of give some uh, fuel to Ian's fire already, but we've actually had some comments on iTunes where, where guys have written in, and it's actually on the site if you go look at our podcast, and, and he'll say, thank you guys for saving me from, you know, years of pointless dieting and you know and and self-starvation and, and, and constant fat loss efforts now I'm just big and strong and I'm getting leaner anyway <laughs> you know and, and so it's, right, it's right it's sort of like what Charles used to say which is and I know we've said it many times on here but look around at what everybody's doing um, and go the opposite direction when everybody's basically failing
2: you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway. I'll add one more thing because I think Ian touched on it well and it's about like all the you know, you can't find a good book now. I want to put a just a, a call to everybody out there that don't even attempt to write a book, please, until you put ten years in, in at least ten
3: years. Thank you, <laughs> thank
2: you. <laughs> Unless you have ten years in the industry,
0: right? You know, like don't tempt- sa- but it's Charles say I, I, a thousand squat sessions before you open your pie hole, something, yeah. yeah. Or even comment, let alone write a book.
3: Exactly.
2: I mean, no, I think that's, that's I'm, I'm done. I'll end there. <laughs> that was a great show, guys. Yeah, I think it was a good show, Ian. Thanks for joining
3: us. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's great to be able to talk to people who actually uh, understand that just get strong and let everything else fall into place and, you know, focus on being an athlete and don't worry about what you look like in the mirror because one day you'll turn around and say, geez, I've got a great physique anyway, haven't I? Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. Okay. Oh, hey, well, thanks, everybody. Yeah,
3: it was Thanks, great. Start. I'll talk to
2: everybody again. Okay.
0: <laughs> bye. bye For the best sports nutrition information on the planet, make plans to attend the 8th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo, June 23rd to 25th, 2011, at the Westin Las Vegas Hotel, Casino, and Spa. We'll have the latest on creatine, beta-alanine, protein, nutrient timing, and much, much more. So for more information, go to www.vissn.org.
3: Hey, Iron Radio listeners. This is John Mike. I just wanted to tell you about the American Society of Exercise Physiologists. It's pleased to announce the 2011 National Meeting on September 22nd, 23rd, and 24th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This will actually be the fourth time the National Conference has been held here in Albuquerque. This three-day event will be held at the Radisson Hotel and Water Park, New Mexico Sports and Wellness and the University of New Mexico, and partly hosted by the Exercise Science Program here at the University of New Mexico. Go to www.ascp.org to learn more about this exciting conference. Thanks so much.
0: Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing. Uh, industry personalities or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, uh, please just click on the donate button at www.ironradio.org and make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, so please visit uh, the website, click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got t-shirts and mugs and things like that. And those things help support the site and keep us on the air.